understanding the unfolding of the events of our lives, I think that there is this human need to make sense and it, we might be deluding ourselves, you know, that idea of everything happens for a reason, which is such an irritating spiritual by, bypass, right? But I do find that in my own life, not going as far as to say everything happens for a reason, but when something happens, I make meaning of it. And I find that that is very grounding and helpful. And it's not to say this terrible thing happened in my life because of some big divine plan, but it really does cultivate resilience to see the unfoldings of our life and to spin some meaning from that. And whether or not it's accurate, I do think it actually helps us get through. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Ellen Vora. She is a board-certified psychiatrist, an acupuncturist, and a yoga teacher. And she is the author of the book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. Ellen takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root. Dr. Vora received her Bachelor's of Science from Yale University and her MD from Columbia University. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Ellen Vora to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Vora, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me here. It's great to be with you. And we were just kind of rambling on a little bit before we recorded. And I was like, man, we, we better get this conversation started because we have a lot to talk about. And and now it's May and it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And so many people now are struggling with anxiety. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day and they're like, I just, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm feeling so anxious. Like I can't control, control my thoughts. I'm just so stressed out with everything going on at work. Like, so if somebody's coming to you with that exact complaint, I'm feeling anxious. Like, what do I do? What are some steps that somebody can take to help sift through what's going on and be proactive to make their situation better? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is really a typical who walks into my office. And in a way, I take a really different approach to this than how I was trained. When I'm, when I meet somebody and they're struggling in this way, they're struggling with anxiety. I'm thinking about their anxiety in two main categories, what I call false anxiety and true anxiety. And false anxiety, it's our physically based anxiety. It's avoidable anxiety. It's the ways that our body gets tripped into a stress response. And then that creates conditions that feel identical to anxiety and it's unnecessary suffering. And then true anxiety is not something that we should be pathologizing. It's purposeful. It's our inner compass nudging us, telling us, hey, here's how you need a course correction in your life. And when I meet somebody, I'm really thinking about, let's first identify the false anxieties at play. That's the low-hanging fruit. Those are the quick wins. We go through that inventory. How is their digestive health? How is their sleep quality? What's their nutrition like? Are they inflamed? Are they constantly on screens? Do they have a healthy or unhealthy relationship to their technological devices, as if any of us have a healthy relationship to it at this point? And so we're really going through all the different ways that their physical body might be getting tripped out of balance. We start there. We address that. And then once we've chipped away at a lot of that and made a lot of incremental progress in their anxiety, what remains is this inner compass, this true anxiety 
that is really the fodder for a much longer and more in-depth conversation about where we can slow down and get still and listen to the ways that we're not being honest with ourselves, how we've gotten out of alignment, where we need a change with our career or our relationships, or just making sure that we remember to call our grandmother every Sunday. But basically the things that nudge us and say, feel anxious about this. And if we just let ourselves, we're just mired in it, we feel helpless, we feel very anxious. But if we start to take purposeful action, then not only do we feel less anxious, but we're then using that true anxiety to fuel really meaningful behavior. Yeah, that, that makes sense because I think in, in a way, like we create, sometimes we create our own anxiety based on our inability to cope with certain stresses in our lives. And and I, I must just say that like I come to your office and I'm saying, okay, like my sleep is good. I'm sleeping eight hours a night. I'm drinking enough water. I'm eating well. My, my, all my vitals are good. I'm exercising. I'm doing all the right things, but I'm still feeling anxious. Like what would be the next step you would take? Yeah. I think that even before we would get to the true anxiety part of that, I am, uh, let's just say I'm no fun. And for someone who feels like they're doing everything right and that physically they're in good shape, I usually can identify some way that we're still not meeting our body's needs or adding something to the system that's irritating it. So for some people, they might be subtly inflamed. This can have to do with our gut health, which, you know, even if you're doing everything right, just existing in modern life means that there's this broad assault against the health of our digestive tract. We've compromised the ecosystem of bacteria in our digestive tract through antibiotics and chlorinated tap water and the Roundup residue on our food. And then a lot of us have a damaged gut lining, whether that's from gluten or that's from industrial seed oils or different kinds of medications. And so a lot of us are walking around with an unhealthy gut, even if we're virtuous, you know, wellness world, healthy, conscious people, it can still be going on. Also, things that are so normal and so common, like the way we interact with substances like caffeine and alcohol, we're just all really different. There's a lot of bio-individuality in terms of how we do with those substances. And one person, for one person, caffeine, coffee might be an inherently healthy substance for them. And for somebody else, they might be a slow metabolizer and it might really be contributing to their anxiety. So there's always a lot of layers that we can look into in terms of what are our just daily seemingly benign habits, in what way are they having an impact on our anxiety levels? Right. I've heard you touch on like the importance of paying attention to like what we're fueling ourselves with and making sure we're paying attention to like different signs that could be off, whether it's gut health, whether it's our energy, whether it's our stress levels. But like, what about environmental factors, like the way somebody grows up or trauma? I mean, because I think in my experience, like that's a major factor that contributes to anxiety. And I personally, in my opinion, like, I think it's great to eat well, to move your body and do all those things. But I, I personally don't think that heals trauma. As somebody in the functional medicine space that is so passionate about using nutrition, health and wellness to help, you know, move people through their anxiety, like how do you also help them if they're really dealing with trauma? Doug, I'm so glad you brought us here. It's an entirely different vertex of the triangle. And I really am sort of equally comfortable in these two spaces. Over here, I put on my functional medicine hat and we're thinking about MTHFR mutation and vitamin B12 levels and gut health and all of that. 
But then when I'm meeting a human being, that's one small piece of what's really, what makes them up and what makes them tick. And the cycle, what I call the psycho-spiritual vertex of the triangle, where trauma, where all of our life experiences that shape us and make us who we are, and also even our present-day connection to community, nature, purpose, meaning, the bigger questions of existence, these are equally important determinants of our mental health, if not more so. And trauma is so significant. And we're Trauma's having a moment right now, right? We have this waking up around it. There's a growing appreciation of what we might not have understood and identified as trauma. People are starting to, you know, there's people like the holistic psychologist, Nicola Perra, who's created this really big public conversation about childhood trauma. And we're getting more informed, but I think that it's still, I feel it's important to emphasize that when you're working with trauma, you want to be sure you're really in the right hands. And our idea is that, okay, if I want to work through trauma, I want to go to psychotherapy and talk to a therapist. And the problem with that is that just talky-talky hashing it out, accessing it on a verbal level, is not only not effective for the most part with trauma, but can even be counter-therapeutic. It can be re-traumatizing. And so I really encourage people to seek out a trauma-focused therapist somebody who's working with either EMDR or somatic experiencing therapy or maybe internal family systems, but basically some kind of trauma-focused care. And that's how you want to access the trauma because it's not stored in our consciously accessible memories. It's really stored at the level of our limbic system and in the connective tissues and in the body. And this is the work of Bessel van der Kolk who talks about how the body keeps the score. It's really our body that's holding on. And when I think about having a patient work through their trauma, I'm really focused on the limbic system. And that's, in a way, when someone's going through a trauma in childhood, it makes sense for them. It's an adaptation to basically be in a state of hypervigilance, hyperarousal. But then that can sometimes become maladaptive in adult life. And, but we're stuck. It's almost like you're stuck with your foot on the accelerator pedal and you're always in a state of hypervigilance, always perceiving threat. And it makes it really hard to ever feel relaxed, to not be anxious, to go through life, even if you're now safe. And so working on the level of the limbic system, reprogramming the limbic system really to start to understand that was then, this is now, the threat has passed. And that's really, I think, such an important emphasis. When, when I meet somebody with anxiety, I want to understand what role does trauma play and then what do we do about that? And, I, and I'm glad that we touched on that because I think there's a, there's a lot of information out there and I think people can be easily confused like how to deal with these complex issues such as like anxiety, trauma, depression, stress, because they're like, okay, I'm seeing that I need to pay attention to my nutrition, which I think is important. I think I see I need to move my body. I need to sleep better. But like, is that it? And in some cases, I mean, yeah, that can be great. And you'll feel a lot better because I'm sure you see people come into your office and and really their their body is just kind of jacked up just from just poisoning themselves with excessive alcohol, you know, eating processed foods, not sleeping well, not drinking enough water, like all those things. But there's, I think, a lot of people that when you tell them that and they, they try these things, there's so much trauma that they've endured that they're not going to get any better. And then they're going to start to question like their own reality. They're going to start to question the process and then even go back in their healing journey, you know, just based on the lack of self-confidence 
in in themselves to being able to 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 achieve it. And I think that's a great place to segue into like the importance of like sense of self and and self confidence when it comes to like navigating anxiety, navigating daily life stressors. And in my opinion, I think it's it's clearly important. Like, what is your view on it? Do you think that the more self confidence somebody has? the better they're going to be at handling these day-to-day anxieties and stressors that pop up? Self-confidence is not a term that I'm throwing around in my practice, I must admit. If anything, when I look at someone who's struggling with anxiety, I am thinking in terms of self-love, which we're very focused on adulthood and self-love and kind of like, what do we do to earn our own respect? And I think there is some work to do there, like comporting ourselves with integrity, um, making choices that make us somebody that we hold in high esteem, you know, someone that we can look at and say, okay, I'm proud of, I'm doing my best out there. It's all I can do. And I think there is work to be done in adulthood, but I'm really thinking about what happens in early childhood that compromises our ability to just exist in a in state of inherent sense of our own worth and our own ability, just feeling worthy of love. And I don't know what it is exactly. I don't know. I'm a parent. And I try to understand even from, from this experience, what can I do in how I show up for my daughter that helps her know her in- inherent sense of worthiness of love? Because there seems to be something that happens in the West that compromises our ability to grow up and recognize our worth in that way. And I think that we get really tripped up and kind of run in all the wrong directions where we almost run towards arrogance and conceitedness and ego. And then we we toggle between that and total self-loathing and shame. And I think that really there's a happier medium out there, which looks a lot more like recognizing our worth while balancing that with humility. And I feel like we get both of those a little bit wrong. And so I don't know what it is. I think that there's something in the way that parents are unsupported and parents are struggling. And I think there might even be something in how we're holding space for our children's emotional development where we're really failing them and not letting them understand their own worth. I think they're also absorbing a lot of our own um, perfectionism and striving and, and the ways that we're not gentle or compassionate with ourselves. I think they absorb that. And, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. What do you think plays into this? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to my friends at Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon is cereal reinvented, and it is my favorite cereal company on the market. Why? Because Magic Spoon cereals have zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. And it's only 140 calories per serving as well. Outside of the impressive nutrition label, the cereal also tastes amazing. The best way to try it is through the variety pack, which comes in four delicious flavors, fruity, frosted, cocoa, and my absolute favorite, peanut butter. So if you are anything like me and just love a good bowl of cereal, or if you're a mom or a parent looking to have a quick and healthy breakfast option, Magic Spoon is for you. Oh, and one more thing. It's also keto friendly, gluten free, grain free, soy free, and low carb. So go to magicspoon.com and enter in Doug at checkout to receive $5 off your first order. Again, it's magicspoon.com and enter in promo code Doug at checkout to receive $5 off your first order. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. 
Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Like the the self-confidence? I mean, I guess in my own experience, I think my biggest levels of of self-confidence have come from continuing to get back up after failing and after falling and knowing that after, and then also after going through hard things and then coming out on the other side and being like, wow, I'm so grateful that I got through that and I learned these lessons. And so I think that in my own personal experience, when I'm going through something hard, my ability to manage it comes back to my the belief in myself that I'm gonna get through it. And then I've been through it before. And that I'm accepting that whatever it is I'm going through is happening for some reason, right? Even though I don't want to like admit it at the time, I'm pissed off, I'm anxious, I'm like pointing fingers in that emotional moment. But deep down, I know like there's something that, that, that I'm being taught right now. I don't know what it is now, but I will see that in a few weeks, a few months. And this is just something that's come with time. I mean, like I was telling you before we recorded like a little bit about my backstory and I've been de- dealing with anxiety since I was a kid. And I wasn't always the greatest at dealing with it. And was what's really helped me get through it is self-awareness and acceptance. And so I, th- I think maybe this, this would be a great time to dive into self-awareness when it comes to anxiety, because I mean, we can have these conversations and a lot of people in the personal development, health and wellness space they are kind of self-aware because they're working on themselves. But I would say the majority of people that are struggling right now are not. The majority of people are just going through life. They are reacting one way. They're responding one way. They're behaving in this way. And they just think that's how they are and they're normal. They have no idea that they're just emotionally tapped out. Um, Their nervous system is, is shut down. They're anxious, they're stressed, whatever. So what are some signs that somebody can pay attention to that they are like going through a time of anxiety, they're going through a time of stress and they need to take a look at themselves and address it. So you brought up like that you've been anxious since childhood and you were telling me earlier about how your parents got divorced. And I just think about that environment that you were in. And something I think is very common is that kids are exquisitely sophisticated social creatures. They pick up on everything. They certainly pick up on the moods and the saccades and the micro expressions of their parents. Saccade is like a medical term for eye eye movements. And I think that the trouble is that culturally, we've been taught to really dumb things down for children, paint on a happy face, put on a smile, say everything's fine, not let them into our problems. And to a certain extent, that's good. We don't want to actually burden our children with our adult problems. We don't want to parentify them or put that kind of adult responsibility on them. But we also can't lie. And I think that when you're growing up and your parents who were struggling, maybe they were fighting, maybe they weren't getting their needs met in some way, they're not feeling 
a sense of ease, but they are inauthentically kind of showing up to you as like, okay, everything's okay. And I think that, or maybe you witnessed a lot of fighting. Either way, it's going to leave you really anxious as a kid. Either you see the fighting and you think, is my inherent security in this foundational home unit, family unit, is it in question? Or the inauthenticity happens, and then that's just so gaslighty as we form our sense of reality and we see parents saying everything's okay, but then we sense that things really are not okay. So that's just how I'm understanding how, you know, anxiety in childhood, it's it's never for no reason. Understanding the unfolding of the events of our lives, I think that there is this human need to make sense, and it, we might be deluding ourselves, you know, that idea of everything happens for a reason, which is such an irritating spiritual by, bypass, right? But I do find that in my own life, not going as far as to say everything happens for a reason, but when something happens, I make meaning of it. And I find that that is very grounding and helpful. And it's not to say this terrible thing happened in my life because of some big divine plan, but it really does cultivate resilience to see the unfoldings of our life and to spin some meaning from that. And whether or not it's accurate, I do think it actually helps us get through. Self-awareness, that's where I think false anxiety is so powerful to really understand that half the time that we feel like the, the sky is falling, we're actually just hungry or sleep deprived. And I really like to start people off first on self-awareness around the physiologic contributors to their moods, because that's the most specious finding, is when we think we're in a state of despair and hopelessness, but then if we have a snack, we're no longer hopeless. We wanna get that lack of self-awareness out of the way first. First identify the possible physical root causes of our mood. And once we've gotten ourselves into a physiologic state of balance, we have a lot more clarity. And from that place of clarity, we can really start to slow down and get still and do away with all of the different dazzling distractors from our phones and our you know, TVs, everything that's taking our attention away from self-awareness and slow down and be with ourselves and be with our thoughts. And there are golden nuggets there and it's not always comfortable, but I think we're in an emotion phobic culture that makes it really hard for us to sit with our emotions. And a lot of us have a lot of rehabilitation to do around being okay with the fact that we might slip into a big mood as we get still with our thoughts, that it's not a sign of weakness, it's really a, a sign of strength. So are you not under the belief that a lot of our reactions and physical, like physical symptoms that occur with anxiety, I guess that would fall under your false anxiety, do you, you don't believe that it's like physiological or biological from like the old saber tooth tiger, like perceived threat notion that people talk about? Or do you think that does play a role as well? Yeah, it plays a role. I mean, in, in a way, the common denominator is the stress response in the body. And that was originally designed for a set of circumstances on the proverbial savanna of evolution. So whether that's facing a saber tooth tiger or being hungry, you know, they were both causes for stress that we don't really face in modern life, most of us, right? We're not you know, even in a place like the United States, much more common than food insecurity is a stress response caused by inflammatory food. And so what's happening today is that the machinery that we had that was designed to handle true famine, a true lack of food, or a saber-toothed tiger is now getting triggered by strong coffee, like a cold brew and sleep deprivation, doom scrolling, and inflammatory foods and a blood sugar crash. And so we have a lot that we can do around that. So I, so I do think it is our, our machinery, but I think it's being inappropriately triggered. Right, right. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that all makes sense. And again, I think it's all this encompassing issue that comes together and there's different sectors of it that that play a part. And you've mentioned excessive screen time. You've mentioned eating better, like decreasing processed foods and, and sleeping well in order to manage anxiety and really prevent people from making these daily stressors that come along with living life worse. Like, what are a few of the, the common things that you're telling your patients and clients that are like non-negotiables every single day to help be proactive in reducing their anxiety? Like, what are a few things that you're telling them? So I don't spend a lot of time emphasizing non-negotiables with my patients. Basically, what I've learned over the years, early on, early days, sort of Dr. Vora in her early functional medicine practice, I gave people 50 things to do. And I was like, you have to eat this way and not that way. And, you know, I kind of had a zero tolerance policy about different stimulants and things like that. And what I learned was that it either made people do nothing, they were totally paralyzed and overwhelmed, or people that were more kind of Gretchen Rubin upholder types, they would jump every time I said to jump and they would become orthorexic and really become obsessive and fixated on eating in the right way. So I've learned to be a lot more gentle and have a looser grip on what I'm encouraging people to do. And I'm usually scoping out, it's almost like every day is opposite day. If somebody is eating like a teenager, I'm coming at them with more of an idea of like, hey, eating well and nourishing yourself from a place of self-love matters and it will help you feel better. But if somebody is already doing everything quote unquote right, then I'm really coming at them from a perspective of take it easy, loosen your grip. You need to have a gentler relationship. And if someone's already doing everything quote unquote right in the wellness space, it's usually a flag to me that there's trauma that we're overlooking. And so I'm kind of always approaching it from a, whatever somebody's already over-indexed on, we're going to do the opposite. So the non-negotiables, I don't know, depends. Sometimes it's gluten. <laughs> Sometimes it's dairy, alcohol is something I usually bring up in as a conversation to see if anybody has any flexibility or openness to changing their relationship to things like alcohol. But there's nothing 100% off limits. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think specifically alcohol and, and caffeine can be detrimental to people's health, depending on how they handle it. Right. I mean, addiction aside, I mean, I think some people just don't tolerate alcohol as well. Some people they're more caffeine sensitive. And like, for me, I can drink caffeine all day and, and say, I'm fine. I mean, maybe I'm not, but I can tolerate it without my heart, like just racing at night. I can fall asleep after I drink a cup of coffee at night. And that's just the way I've essentially always been. And I'm glad you brought up like the, the orthorexia approach because you're seeing, I think you see a lot of that now in the health and wellness space. And I think that's the problem with the eat this, don't eat that, or all dairy is bad. All this is bad because now it's creating these eating issues where people are frightened of certain foods. And I think people are frightened of certain foods that they shouldn't be frightened of and there's a lot of like you see a lot of headlines and people will assume that because one person is intolerable to a certain food that they are too and i think you have to be really careful with that because we're already in this space where people are struggling with their mental health and anxiety and we want to make sure that we're not making it worse i i think though that people are they're all they're often looking for like simple tools to self-regulate when they're feeling anxious because it's easy to say, okay, I can eat better today or I need to get more sleep. But sometimes people are just in panic mode. 
So like, what are some of the things that, that you personally do when you're, you're feeling emotionally charged, elevated to, to bring yourself back down to a neutral state and, and so that you don't react in a way that's hyper emotional? Yeah. And just going back one beat to what you're bringing up about orthorexia, I think that, you know, giving people an even stronger sense of their own fragility or making them fear food, you might help them get nourished or less inflamed, but that's not going to help them with their anxiety. It's in many ways only going to make it worse. So we have to be aware of where focusing on healthy eating in our modern food landscape that makes it so difficult can be counter therapeutic. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's almost like the more elegant solution is having a connection to in a moment to moment basis, what foods trigger me? Sort of what are my catnip? What is the thing that gets me into a unhealthy relationship with food? And it's a little different for all of us. Could be gluten or dairy or sugar, or the flavor crystals and processed foods. And for other people, it's just restriction at all is what triggers them. And so we have to be aware of that for ourselves and moment to moment make a self-loving choice of here's how I choose to nourish myself right now. Here's how I choose to engage in the pleasure or the ease of food or share in an experience or connect to nostalgia with food. And so we have all these competing priorities. And it's it's hard to do that with any kind of cookbook, one-size-fits-all approach. It's almost like the more elegant solution is to train and to teach ourselves how to be in that dynamic with food. To answer your question about self-regulating, especially like in the moment of what I call the point of no return, like when we're already in intense anxiety or in a panic attack, I'll be the first to admit, I think that I really, I can and have written a book about how to prevent anxiety in the first place. But when it comes to reacting to anxiety that has already happened, I'm like just below average at that. It's not my strong suit. But here's what I do to support my patients who find themselves in this situation. I think that panic is really interesting. It's this runaway train snowball effect that happens. So it, it starts with something, maybe a stress response in the body, maybe a collection of sort of thoughts that snowball and pile on themselves. And if it's thoughts, it's always generally future tripping. It's usually some thought around uncertainty or lack of control, or I'm going crazy, or I'm going to lose my mind, or I'm going to die, or I'm going to have a heart attack. And a lot about this would be so worst case scenario if, and often it even becomes, if I have a panic attack here. And so all of that can pile on itself. And anything that brings us back to the present moment is helpful because future tripping is by definition, not in the present moment. So grounding in the present moment is like this garlic to the panic vampire. And so whether that means doing one of those practices where you identify, you know, here are the seven things that I can see and the six things that I can you know, smell and hear the things that I can feel and taste and touch. And you just start to identify things in the present moment and just grounds your trains your energy on that. For some people counting by sevens, like back from a hundred can help them to stay in the present moment. For some of my patients going outside, shaking, moving, dancing, exercising, splashing cold water on their face, opening a window, some of that is helpful. And I think that it starts to become helpful to really see your panic, not as a mysterious black box of this is my body almost about to go crazy or about to die, but just to really understand it as a scientist. This is my body in a stress response. Look at how my body responds to the stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline. My heart beats harder, it beats faster. My breath becomes more rapid and more shallow. Pupils constrict, my 
You can feel the vasoconstriction, like you can feel your blood vessels tightening in your hands and your feet. You can feel yourself sweating. You can get a little lightheaded and dizzy. And to recognize this is not all the alarm of your body being about to go crazy or about to have a heart attack. This is your body in a stress response. And to start to see it for that and to almost see it as a sign of function, an indication of your body working rather than it being in trouble. Right. I think it, it really boils down to, to what works best for the individual. Like I know for me, people are like, yeah, you got to do yoga. You got to do medit, you got to meditate. But when I'm like hyper anxious, like the last thing I want to do is go do yoga. Like the, the first thing I want to do is go for a run and I'm able to like kind of process my thoughts, kind of like you were saying, you're, you're future tripping and I'm able to like walk myself through that on a, like a light jog. And that helps me listen, put on some music. But again, that doesn't work for, for everyone. And you brought up the point of uncertainty. And I think personally, I think that uncertainty and anxiety have have, a, have this relationship that like the more uncertain you feel like chances are your anxiety is going to be up but we live in a world where we almost want life to be certain and life's never certain so what tips would you have for somebody to lean into uncertainty and really use it to their advantage yeah and i'm going to want once more, go back one beat, which is just that, yes, yoga, meditation, wonderful for panic, but never as the reactive treatment, only ever as the preventative. They are the prophylactic. So do your breath work, do your yoga as a daily multivitamin that's going to change your threshold for whether or not you get tipped into panic. But to tell someone who's in a panic attack, like, just do a four, seven, eight breath. No, it's not really going to be the thing in that moment. They that you're at the point of no return and it can really only be counter therapeutic to start to manipulate the breath. There are exceptions, but for the most part, that's the case. So uncertainty. I think this is like a fundamental question in the human condition is like, how do we be okay with the gray area and the uncertainty of this existence? This is the inherent vulnerability of being alive. It's certainly at the heart of true anxiety and there is not a solution for it though we try. And so I think that this is part of where we're at right now as a culture where we've really had a rebound away from organized religion. And that's sort of the, the swing of the pendulum that we're in right now. And I'm not really here to defend organized religion. It's got its issues. But one thing it did is it it helped give humans a framework for A, gathering together and having community, B, like seeking and asking the bigger questions, but it gave us a, a way of making sense of uncertainty. It said, you know, this is happening for this reason and, you know, gave us something to focus on and to make sense and to be comforted with the completely inherently impermanent and uncertain vicissitudes of human life. And so I think that in a way, to be okay with uncertainty, you either need to have a kind of really enlightened view, or you might want to find some framework that feels true for you that makes sense of it. And I think just pure atheism is a tricky one. You certainly can make sense of uncertainty there. You can see the universe as, as random and just this pure material accident. Um, and so uncertainty makes sense in that framework, but it's pretty anxiety provoking because you feel like, okay, this is your one shot at existing and you might as well be hypervigilant and try to prevent the worst case scenario from happening at all times or else this is the end dust to dust and i think that that's anxiety provoking i personally find comfort in feeling like there might be something vastly beyond my comprehension occurring here and and that you know encroaches on the concept of something divine not necessarily like a white guy with a beard in the sky 
but something that gives me a sense of magic or meaning. It's not for everyone. You know, I'm certainly not here to proselytize. It's not, you can't force this viewpoint, but you can give yourself permission to seek it, to see where in your life do you feel a sense of awe or wonder? Is it in church or is it in physics class or is it in a church choir or when you go hiking? But if you feel awe, maybe lean into that a bit and see if that helps you it gives you some framework for being with the uncertainty, the inherent uncertainty of being alive. And does it give you comfort perhaps to know that maybe the end is not quite so absolute? Right. And I think this goes back to, and I kind of, I know we kind of, in a way, like disagreed on this where I was like, when I go through anxiety, I'm, I'm like accepting it as part of it's happening for me, not to me. And you kind of alluded to the fact that it was in your opinion, part of like spiritual bypassing, which is fine. And I think at the end of the day, like it definitely can be in, in what helps me and the way I see it might be different than like what you might see or somebody else. But I think it goes back, it comes back full circle now that maybe like the common theme between what I'm saying and what you're saying is that we have to feel this connection to something greater than us, whatever it is. And that whatever that, that thing is, is guiding us along the way, whether it's the universe, whether it's God, whether it's the trees, when you're hiking, like whatever you, you believe in. And it just gives you the sense of peace that even though like you don't know where you're going, like you're confident that you're going to get to the place you're intended to go. Yeah. Let me clarify one thing. I think we actually completely agree. I am also someone who makes meaning of my experiences, my anxiety, my moods, what the events of my life. I'm more just anticipating the common criticism that that is, you know, a spiritual bypass to say that everything happens for a reason. I, I think of it more as I make meaning of what happens. But yeah, I think that we're, we're on the same page with that. I mean, yeah, I mean, in my experience, there's no other way to look at it because you can say this, why is this happening to me? And then you get caught up in the, the victim shame cycle. And, and that, that only, I think, hurts you because it, it prevents you from taking action and, and, and being self-aware of like, what's the path forward out of the situation that you're in. I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier. I want, I want to, I want, I would like to know like, what's something that you've changed your perspective or your view on in the last few years as somebody in the psychiatry space, somebody in the functional medicine world when it comes to anxiety. I know you, you touched on that you've, you've kind of realized like in a way like nitpicking it, it's certain like nutritional things in, in people's lives can be detrimental and can create these indirect mental health struggles that maybe you didn't, you didn't realize at the time. Like what are some other things that you've changed your view and perspective on when it comes to helping your clients and patients cope with anxiety? I mean, I try to be someone who changes my mind all the time. I feel like that's a really healthy way to go through life and to certainly live in in contrast to our hyper-polarized sort of talking at each other on the internet that's happening these days, so entrenched in our views. I constantly try to follow people that I disagree with and try to learn their perspective and see if I can change my mind. Um, certainly the orthorexia one, where I've become less dogmatic about what dietary changes are necessary and how to approach that behavioral change with my patients. I would say there's also, I have a constantly changing relationship to psychiatric medications. Uh, I was certainly trained to prescribe them and that was somewhat disenchanting for me was to see how I wasn't really helping my patients thrive. They were getting masterfully medicated. They were on a cocktail of psychiatric medications. I was doing what I was trained to do, um, but they were sort of you know, hobbling out of my office, like being like drug, maybe I feel a little bit better. I don't know. But now I have this new side effect. And now we're adding this drug to address that side effect. And it creates so new side effect and so on and so forth. 
And that, that felt like just a dog chasing its tail. And I never felt really good. So that I went on to study all these other disciplines like functional medicine and Chinese medicine, acupuncture, Ayurveda, nutrition, and, and to really understand how else can I help my patients beyond medication. And that was a really fulfilling journey for so long was to say, okay, anxiety, depression, bipolar, we can address this at the fundamental root cause of the problem and we don't need medication. We obviate the need for medication. But in the last year or so, I've been getting a very clear lesson, um, just sort of an example of how we're aligned in this spiritual bypass adjacent way of living. I've been getting a very clear lesson in my practice of the necessity of psychiatric medications. And I don't think that we should be prescribing them willy-nilly. I do think they're overprescribed. I think that we are doing an inadequate job of informed consent. I think there are concerns around discontinuation that need to be better addressed. There's so much I want to address around psychiatric medications. But I also have had a couple patients in the past year who we worked tirelessly for years to take a holistic approach, and we weren't making enough progress. And then they went on a medication, and that was the key to the kingdom. And so I've had to really re-examine my dogmatic views around avoiding pre prescribing psychiatric medications and taking a more root cause resolution approach. And I think one other area where I've changed my mind is just a, a constant evolution towards recognizing that spirituality has a central role in mental health. And I wasn't trained to think about that. That was definitely off limits <laughs> for a psychiatrist. And so I really kind of pussyfooted around it for a long time, but now I don't avoid it because I've witnessed too many times that we at least need to be talking about this. And someone can say, no, I do not have a relationship to spirituality, and that's totally fair. But I've had enough patients where they've said, well, I was raised this, but I threw that away because that didn't serve me, and now I have nothing, but I feel a, a sort of empty space where I used to have religion. And so to give people permission to reapproach those questions and figure out what does feel true for them has given a lot of my patients a path to reclaiming some connection to meaning and purpose in their life. I love that. And I love how you brought up like the medication thing. I've been on a lot of antidepressants and anti-anxiety, I guess SRIs throughout my life. And like one of the things that I've always kind of had an issue with is that in many ways, like before prescribing these medications, there's not a lot of talk on like, well, here's how you can improve your sleep. Here's how you can eat better. Here's why you should exercise for your mental health, like before, or even like alongside like prescribing a medication. And with that said, like, what are some boxes that somebody should check before like going to a psychiatrist to get a medication prescribed like is it should they be paying attention being like a, paying attention to their sleep should they be doing like a dietary recall where they're tracking their food for a few days like like what are some steps somebody can take before like diving into that i wish that were the system <laughs> that they had this 10 steps to do before and i'll say this is variable based on the acuity of the situation if somebody is really in a dire situation they might need to take medication before devoting three or four months to these 10 check boxes right so but if someone has a little more wiggle room then that gives us a little more time to think about checking those boxes before we consider medication sleep is certainly primary and with all these things it's not like we don't necessarily have this information like we know we need to sleep we know we need to look at our diet and look at exercise we kind of know that so part of what I'm here to say is like, no, really, here's the evidence that says that this is central to our mental health, but perhaps most importantly, it's the behavioral psychology piece and those little troubleshooting 
pearls of, you know that you need to eat well. Well, what does it mean to eat well? And how do you realistically do that? And a lot of people right now are putting a lot of effort and a lot of sacrifice into quote unquote eating well, but they're not actually doing it right. And it's you know creating orthorexia or it's creating a vitamin B12 deficiency or it's creating SIBO, like a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So there are a lot of ways that we can eat right wrong. And so I think that it still requires kind of an enlightened approach to it. But sleep is primary. And a lot of us are not sleeping well, and it really relates to modern environment. Most of all, the light cues that are disrupting our circadian rhythm. So that's first and foremost. How to adequately nourish ourselves, which simultaneously means not inflaming our brains, but also getting all of the micronutrient needs that we have. So we need certain things for mental health, like vitamin B12, folate, iron, zinc, omega-3 fatty acids, choline. And then I think that gut health is in there, and there are a lot of ways for our gut health to be awry, um, to have gone awry. But I think that we, you know, working with a naturopath is usually a pretty good step to take to make sure that we're on our path towards getting our gut healthy. Substances are always worth examining, whether that's caffeine or alcohol or cannabis or um, illicit substances. We just they can pinball our physiology around. They can certainly pinball our brain chemistry around. And before we go to take another drug to address our mental health, let's just be aware if there's an underlying drug that is already um, throwing our physiology off. And that includes FDA-approved prescribed medications. I have many patients who, for them, it's birth control is what's causing their depression or anxiety. And when we get them off of oral contraceptives, these exogenous hormones, they no longer need their antidepressant or their benzodiazepine. And so just to always be examining, nothing is completely off limits. Really everything that we're ingesting, everything that is contributing to our physiologic state of balance or imbalance is up for grabs in terms of what might be contributing to our mental health. So we've talked about like the unfortunate consequences on people's mental health with being too picky about what people eat when it comes to their anxiety, when it comes to the food choices that they, they make. And there's a lot of like fear mongering around certain foods. I mean, do you hear some people say, don't eat this, don't eat that, or stay away from this, stay away from that, or this is gonna cause, it's gonna cause that. And like we've kind of talked, touched on, like I think it's created these adverse side effects that people never thought about that they would create. So you're in, you're in both worlds, right? You're in the functional medicine space, but you're also in the psychiatry space and have, are in this profession of really helping people with their mental health. So if you had to, you throw out one critique of the functional medicine, nutrition, wellness space when it comes to like the messaging online and how it's impacting people's mental health, like what would that be? So all due respect, like I am a self-proclaimed functional medicine practitioner. And for me, it was the magic eye poster of how could I not see that of course our health, we want to address it at the root cause and not just suppress symptoms with a bandaid. Like once you see that, you can't unsee that. It's to me, the only way forward. That said, we over-prescribe supplements, and it's always well-meaning, but it's significant to, to have a person go and shell out hundreds of dollars on supplements and then stand at their kitchen counter every morning and choke down a bunch of pills. It's meaningful. It conveys this feeling of, I'm sick, I'm a patient, and reinforcing that message and making their healing journey a part-time job. That keeps people sick. And I think it's really important to give people a through line to what it feels like to be well. And so I do think we overprescribe supplements and I think it has all kinds of downstream consequences. And 
there is that orthorexia concern. I mean, it's been a theme of our whole conversation, but we, in battling against all the ways that our modern food environment is so messed up and is making us sick, we just end up becoming our own source of illness by fear-mongering and by making people need to fear food and then socially isolating and declining dinner party invitations and kind of siphoning off from their normal friends and feeling weird and feeling fragile. And this isn't helping anybody. So we need to somehow strike the balance. I wish we could just have a food system that we could trust. And then there wouldn't need to be any delicate balance striking. We don't. But so the onus is on us to figure out how do we nourish ourselves while still living in the world, while still saying yes to dinners with friends. Um, it's a delicate balance, but um, we can't just make everyone fear food and socially isolate. It's a really good point to, for people to hear because, I mean, I've been there. I've been the person who was like traveling on an airplane with, with chicken breasts and, and broccoli and, and I was miserable. Like I was almost more miserable then than I was when I was eating severely unhealthy because like I thought that was going to just give me eternal happiness was having this physique and eating this way. And when I realized it didn't and it made me like feel crazy, like I felt so horrible about myself. This is a really great example of the balance to strike, right? So here's three travel scenarios. And I'm a precious, precious snowflake, right? And I don't eat gluten and I barely eat dairy and I do all the things, right? So if I am taking a flight from my home to somewhere else, I will either have leftovers from dinner that I'll pack up in Tupperware and bring on the plane as my plain food, or I'll order takeout and bring that as my plain food. So easy enough have real food that I like that I don't find to be bland. Like I find it to be delicious and nourishing and it's easy enough to eat well on the plane. The flight home from somewhere else, there's no way I'm, I don't have a Tupperware at that point. I don't know my takeout options. So then I'm ordering the Mexican food at the airport and reminding myself I'm not fragile and I can handle this. And then if I'm taking a flight in a part of the world that has a healthier food system, if I'm in Italy somewhere, then I'm showing up at the airport and getting the cappuccino and the croissant. And so that's sort of the range of how I think about this. And it will constantly vary, but you want to strike the balance of how do we nourish ourselves without driving ourselves crazy? It has to only ever come from an act of self-love in a sustainable way. And for me, that's, you know, eating homemade food on the way out, eating airport Mexican food on the way back and eating a croissant, a cappuccino in Italy. And I think it varies based on the person. I mean, the, the issue kind of I see with a lot of this in a practical way, just as somebody who's been a trainer for a while and I have a, I've trained a lot of clients is like there's this message on the internet that you have to go from zero to a hundred and a lot of the people like they can't they're having a hard time getting from like zero to, to five or zero to three so like how can the messaging change online to say okay instead of like cutting out all these foods because they're quote-unquote inflammatory they're quote-unquote going to destroy your health or whatever the messaging is like what are some just simple changes somebody can make is it, you know, just drinking more water or just focusing on eating like a couple servings of vegetables a day or making sure you're getting enough protein, like whatever it is. Like, like I think that is a great step in the path forward to helping people as a whole, because I think there's so many silos in the nutrition space. And I think we get caught up in that sometimes, but I think the masses, like they just need to, to learn how to eat less processed foods and get enough protein and, and drink more water and just really like master the fundamentals. Yeah. I mean, simple fixes. I think I really like the set it and forget it things. You do it kind of once and then you don't have to worry about it again. I think you switch out your cooking fats. So rather than having like 
the bottle of Wesson canola oil or whatever. You have some avocado oil, you have some ghee, you have some butter, you have some coconut oil. You use a mixture of these things, olive oil as well, and depending on smoke point, but that's what you're using to cook with. I do think having a water filter is pretty useful. If we're trying to make it easy for ourselves to feel better, the quality of our water that we're drinking makes a big difference. And when we're drinking tap water that has chlorine and fluoride and the pesticide residues and everyone's peed out birth control residues like, and everyone's Zyprexa and Lipitor in it, it's not really helping us and we're just going to keep feeling metabolically deranged. So putting something like just a little sink water filter that you screw onto your faucet can make a big difference. And then switch out your salt as well. If you have the regular table salt with anti-caking agents and aluminum, like it's definitely not helping you. And this is a really easy fix. If you get some kind of sea salt, some kind of pink Himalayan salt, not only is it healthier for you and you'll feel better, but also you can stop fearing salt and food can be palatable again. I think that that's really done a great disservice to our population to say that sodium was the problem. Processed foods and the kind of salt that they use is certainly a problem. But real good quality salt within reason is not a problem. And so make your food palatable again and have good salt at home. And then I think I like science for this reason, because when we say, you know, zero to 100 is unrealistic and just people feel overwhelmed, then they're having trouble going from zero to five. But the trouble is we're really looking for if we make a sacrifice and we make a change, we want to feel the benefit. We want to see that it's making a difference. And a lot of these things, when done sustainably, don't make an overnight difference. And so we can't just decide, are we going to keep making these changes based on whether or not we feel instantly a million bucks better? And so what we need to do instead, I think, is convince ourselves with science and to understand here's the why behind why these changes make sense, why they're worth doing, and put them into place a little longer than you might otherwise, um, trusting that this is going to benefit your health and how you feel in the long term, um, whether or not you feel instantly better. And so I really like a scientific explanation for why bother making these changes, because sometimes we do need to kind of trust that they're going to work, even if we don't feel the difference right away. Right. And, and change takes time. And if somebody has been making these same choices for the last 10, 15, 20 years, like I think expecting somebody to just all of a sudden just completely change their, their plate and their habits like overnight is hard for a lot of people and i think people like to see progress but i think also people like to have they like to feel good and have confidence in what they're doing and and feel like they're achieving something so if you tell somebody hey like for the next two weeks i just want you to f to focus on drinking x amount of water and they, they do that they're like oh i'm feeling good i can do this and then it's like the next step the next step the next step versus like traditionally what happens is people are like all right i want you to cut out this cut out that add this add that do this do that and people are like whoa 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 and of course, it's just unrealistic for them and they feel like a failure and they just get caught up in that cycle of overwhelm, lack of self-confidence in, in their ability to change because things just seem so steep for them. The mountain seems so steep for them to climb. If I can throw three behavioral ones, just as you made the point, like too many is too much, but like so three, so I, we got sort of a couple of food based ones, but I think behaviorally some set it and forget it changes to make. One would be to not bring your phone into your bedroom at night. So you just set up your charger somewhere else in your home. You can adjust your settings so that an emergency call, a double call, a call from favorites would still come through. You would still hear it, but it's not on your bedside table. You're not doom scrolling right before bed. You're not seeing that blue spectrum light disrupting your circadian rhythm. 
I'm going to tack on to that one, like having some kind of blue blocking glasses that you can put on at sunset and wear until bedtime. They, you know, they could look more normal. You don't have to look like you're about to do metallurgy, but you're welcome to. These are $8 on Amazon. So basically having something to protect your circadian rhythm at night. Moving your body at all after dinner is a really wonderful thing to do. And it could be a 20 minute walk around the block. It could be you dance to Whitney Houston in your living room, but just some kind of movement after dinner really helps your body. So it's, we could call it a constitutional. It helps with digestion, helps with insulin sensitivity. And then the last one is to cry more. And that's a really nice free medicine that we all have access to. Although a lot of us are, you know, we've been culturally conditioned to think of it as a burden, as weird, as weakness, as a sign that you're in a bad place. I think crying is the deep wisdom of the body giving us an opportunity for a much needed release. And we always feel better afterward. So if you get any kind of inkling to cry, to let yourself cry, don't apologize for it. Rather than making it smaller and sucking it back in, let it be big, let it be complete. Amazing. I think that's a great place for us to kind of come to a close with our conversation, Ellen. And I wanted to thank you. This has been great. I think this was a nice conversation that I think people are going to get a lot out of. We covered so much. And I think people are going to want to check out your work. They're going to want to get your book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. And so if people want to connect with you and they want to check out your work, like where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, I mean, my whole life's work is basically in those 270 pages. So the anatomy of anxiety is, that's everything right there. But I'm pretty active on Instagram. I'm at ellenvoramd, and my website is ellenvora.com. Sweet. Well, I once again, thank you for taking the time. I know you're busy and you got a lot going on. And again, this I think this episode is going to be really helpful for people, especially at this time. And I will make sure to include the links to your work and your um, social media channels and website in the show notes. And for those listening, what I want you to do is to share a takeaway, maybe something that Ellen said about orthorexia, maybe something that she said about like, like really looking at what's causing anxiety, maybe it's something that she said about trauma, whatever it was, tag Ellen and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.